When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before him and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You have um, probably come across the news uh, this weekend and seen a lot of reflection of 20 years ago in all that this country went through. And uh, like many of you, my mind was transported to where I was and what I was doing and the situation going on in my life at the time and things. And, um, and, and so I can only speak to my own experience and interpretation of those events and things. And, and uh, I remember being a, a much younger man. 20 years ago, in a lot of different ways, and uh, uh, many, many kids ago, uh, we were preparing to have our third child. We were awaiting her arrival. She was days away, and so my mind was in the place of, is my wife going to call at any moment? Are we ready for this? Um, how are we going to fit three kids in our tiny uh, two-bedroom apartment in Boston and all these kinds of things? And so I was distracted with all the normal mundane and the, 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 the things in life that we all go through in stages, and then... Of course, all of that happened and we were attacked as a nation and everybody, it seems, was watching it uh, on, a, on a screen and glued to that screen. And I had arrived for work that morning a little bit late and uh, was in a parking garage and one of my coworkers was getting out of her car at the same time and she said, did you hear on the radio they said that, that the uh, World Trade Center was hit by a plane? And I, I, I kind of teasingly said, not really as a joke, but just sort of, you know, nervous, whatever. And I just said, what are we under attack or something? And I don't know why I thought that other than the fact that, you know, I was picturing a small plane hit a building and it was just an accident. But at the same time, something in my mind was ringing true of a few years prior about the World Trade Center being attacked. And so I just remember it being this bizarre processing. You know, you're you're confused. You're trying to wrap your head around something that doesn't enter into your world. And by the time we had rode our elevator up to our office area and stuff, um, we had heard that a second plane had had hit and uh and and now in our conference room 
uh, on, on a big screen TV. Everybody was just glued to news coverage and watching what was going on. And I remember thinking, cause, cause I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a young guy. I'm, I'm an underling. You know, I have no authority in this company. I have responsibilities to do. I have, I have some accounts that I need to close and have progress before I go away and, and, uh, stay in a hospital for, you know, a few days with my wife and then home for a few more days and things. I've got things I've got to wrap up and do, but of course that's all seems to have been put on the back burner as you're watching all of this go on. But I remember seeing a lot of the people that had a lot more authority than me. They were popping up like popcorn, going back to their, their office, checking on some things, coming back. And I'm trying to read the room going, am I allowed to just be sitting here watching the news? Or do they want me back at work and should I be at my cubicle making phone calls? And it looked like they were all going back to work. Well, in hindsight or down the road, I realized they had, you know, friends and and family and contacts and things in the city and from other parts of the world and stuff like that. So they were checking. They weren't necessarily going and, and getting to work. You know, they were concerned about those things. I didn't know what to do. I was a young, inexperienced man, and I remember I was like, well, if I got some accounts to close, I got some calls I got to make, I can't call anybody in the States because that's, you know, we're all, you know, going through the same thing right now, but I've got some phone calls I can make to Europe and stuff, so I started doing that, and the, the first thing they said to me on the phone was, Brent, we're so sorry for what your country's going through right now, and it, and it just spoke to me like I shouldn't be making business calls right now. And I didn't know what to do. I was very confused and I was very in limbo. And this is not anybody's major suffering. I'm not trying to compare my story to anybody's. It's just I was in a state of confusion as I was trying to wrap my head around where I should be. Should I be heading home and watching the television with my wife and our two young kids and everything? Or should I be getting ready for... It's just when things are happening at a, at a pace and a, and, a, and a level that you can't comprehend, confusion sets in and you don't know where to be or what to do. We were witnessing for American history a pivotal moment in things that would change so many of our our existences forever. And when you're in the midst of history and you can't comprehend it because it's too big for you to comprehend, you you kind of stumble around in a state of confusion. Not to make too much of a leap back to our text in the in the verses that that Jay just read for us out of John chapter seven, but it is the situation that's going on, not for traumatic reasons, but because history is entering the world of the average person in a in a level they can't comprehend. Remember, we've been saying that they've been anticipating Messiah would come on the stage. They knew that the most life-transformative event in all of history, even greater than what we experienced in 2001, greater than anything else that we've seen in the history of the world, was showing up perhaps any moment. And there was anticipation. What's he going to look like? Where's he going to be from? What's he going to say? What is this going to mean to our lives? So as Jesus comes on the scene, there's, there's a comprehension or an attempt to comprehend. Could this be the one? And everything he says is, is sending their opinion over this way. And then someone else comes in and, and challenges it, says something else. So they go over in this direction and they're confused. They're kind of stumbling around going, are we witnessing history in the making? Or is this just another upstart who's going to be proven to be wrong? We're going to be talking about how Jesus is a divider in so many ways because of the truth of who he is. But that division comes mostly from a confusion as to who he is. 
The setting that we had for us in John chapter 7 is in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles while the Jewish migration, if you will, to, to Jerusalem to erect these um, shacks and these shanties and things to commemorate God's faithfulness. And the family would go and they'd spend the night out under the stars and they'd be able to tell the kids all the stories of God's provision of light to lead the, the Jews on their, on their way in the wanderings. They would have um, a festival, they would have feasting, and they would have water present, and the water was a symbol of the provision that God had given to them as Moses went and struck the rock, and, and out of it flew uh, flooded uh, waters for them to be able to have and things. And this is a time of celebration, but it's also couched in this time of anticipation what could be happening here. And in the middle of it, we saw in our text that Jesus inserts himself to he arrives and he teaches just as they were anticipating he would, but he came at God's timing. And then he, he teaches throughout, he deals with some of the controversy and the questions that come in that environment. And just towards the end, as the priest is making the journey from the temple down to the water gate, and he gets the picture in, and they're all celebrating that, and they're, they're shouting their praises, they're quoting their psalms, and he goes back to the temple and he goes around the altar seven times. Uh, indicating and, and commemorating that journey around the Jericho walls as the children of Israel shout and the whole city comes crumbling down. And as the, as the, as the priest is doing that, as everyone's attention is wrapped around what that man is doing and holding that up and they're shouting higher, higher and higher. And as we saw in the text, it's at that moment that Jesus interrupts the whole scene and shouts and cries out, making this most incredible offer where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus interrupts the celebration at the height of their attention to offer them the most profound and important offering they'd ever receive in their life. Are they witnessing history in the making? Is it possible that we're present for the very thing that our, our generations of, of ancestry have been waiting for? Waiting for it to come? That's an intentional effect. I'm trying to pay attention to what he's saying right now. I love technology. It happened in the New Testament too. You just don't read about it. Paul left that in the footnotes. So how was Jesus' offer, this most incredible offer, how was it received? People must have said, thank you for interrupting our celebration. Thank you for finally making the pitch that we've been waiting for our entire lives, right? Well, some did. Some started thinking, maybe this is the real deal. Maybe we're watching history in the making. Maybe he has finally arrived. But before we even see that, what we see in verse 43 is there was division among the people over him. There's always division amongst the people. Are we, are, are we not seeing that all the time, every time? There's always division amongst the people. But what was going on now is there's division over the, amongst the people over Jesus, which still continues today. Some were saying... This is the prophet. Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 18 that there would be another prophet. There would be a prophet coming in, in the fashion of me that would lead you, would speak to you the words of God. And it would be true. 
In the scriptures, they also knew that the Christ, the anointed one, the king over everything would come as well. And in the Jewish mind, they separated those two offices. We had the prophet coming and we have the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one coming. We know from hindsight, knowing our scriptures, of course, Jesus fulfills both offices in one person. And they're saying, well, this can't be him because he's supposed to come from Bethlehem, from the line of David. This dude's from Galilee. What do we know about Jesus where he was born? There's confusion. There's division over them. They're not, they're not uh, settled in their minds or their understanding or their interpretation of Scripture so that they can properly receive him. They're stumbling around in confusion trying to make sense of this event that is too big for them to comprehend, it would seem. So let's see what happens because we have a lot of forces at work here. There's a lot of, a lot going on in this situation. We're going to try to break it down as we go and see what the Lord has for us in this. If we pick back up in verse 44, uh, what we see is it says some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came. So what's going on here is that the, uh, the religious system Judaism has its own officials, and they're the, the most sort of feared people in society, if you will. They are there to protect the integrity or the orthodoxy of the faith. And so you have leadership that has a, a, a team of officers, and they delegate. They go, you need to go check that out. Someone's talking about God over here. Let's go make sure they're, they're saying the right things. Or this one's trying to stir something up. You go and, and deal with this. And they had the authority to arrest and so some of them went because they were sent to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. And we might think it's because he slipped through the nets again. The scriptures tell us that every so often, if Jesus' time hadn't come, hasn't come, he's able to just kind of duck and dodge and avoid. Verse 45 and following starts to tell us really what happened here. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, their bosses, who they answered to, who said back to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, because no one ever spoke like this man. There's a language thing that's going on here that would help us. They're not just saying, because this guy's a really good talker. We didn't arrest him just because, um, you know, he, he, he was, he was really talented or he's really popular. Really what they're saying is, we're not quite sure these are human words. No one ever spoke like this man. No human being ever spoke like this man. There's an indication there that they have witnessed something uh, so beyond their comprehension that they couldn't move. We couldn't move in on him. Why? Because we were starting to think maybe everything we've been waiting for has finally arrived. So, so Sam, do you want to be the one to go and arrest the one we've been waiting for for centuries? No. Uh, Mark, do you want to go and arrest? No, uh, I can't, I can't apprehend him. What if we're wrong on this? He certainly seems to know what he's talking about. He certainly seems to be saying things that we've never heard before. They went to arrest him, but it was Jesus who was doing the arresting. He stopped them dead in their tracks. We can relate to these officers because we're human beings and we all crave truth. And we recognize it when we hear it. 
Even if everything we've been hearing has been lying to us, leading us down a dead end path or something, when we hear truth, something in our soul wakes up and it stops us in our tracks and we think, am I hearing the right thing for the first time? This is pictured for us in the, the, the story that's often titled in your scripture. It'll say it right over your verses. It'll say the road to Emmaus. And there were a couple of women who were traveling after Jesus had been crucified and after he had been buried and rumors are now starting to happen about the fact that he's risen and he's no longer in the grave. And these women were walking down this path, down this road, kind of recounting all of the things that they just witnessed. Truly, they were hopeful and believers that Jesus from Nazareth was the Messiah. And as they were, the scripture says, as they were reflecting and trying to capture the whole thing and reminisce about it all, they encounter a stranger who says, why do you guys look so dejected? Why do you look so sad and so sulking? And they say, are you the only person around that doesn't know what we just went through? The the one that we followed, the one that we had placed our hopes in, they, they arrested him, they crucified him, and they buried him. And we've heard that he's risen from the dead, but we had had such hopes that he was going to be our savior, that he was going to lead our people to victory. And now we're not so sure. And Jesus then, though they didn't know it was him, begins to explain to them through, it says through the Old Testament scriptures, basically takes them through the Bible, the only Bible they had, takes them through and pointing out that this is where I show up and this is where I show up. But he wasn't saying I, he says, this is where the Messiah would come from. This is how the scriptures have pointed to his arrival. He had to suffer these things. He was going to be buried for three days. He would rise again. And, and, and as they were hearing this truth, their eyes opened up and recognized him. And the scripture says at the moment they recognized him, he was gone. And what do they say after this encounter? Didn't our hearts burn within us? As he was teaching us the truth, as he was walking us through the scriptures, wasn't there something before we even knew it was him that was drawing us to him? This is who you and I are. We were created to receive this truth, but sin as it's entered the world has knocked us way off track and we're, we're selling out for cheap substitutes that continue to leave us empty and dry. That's why we've been talking so much about the satisfaction that Jesus brings. So when he speaks, even for these officers who went with a job to do and to arrest him, they were stopped in their tracks saying, I don't want to be the one guilty of of stopping the only person who's speaking truth into my life. When was the last time that the words of scripture stopped you in your tracks? When was the last time that the word of truth arrested you? Now, I have to ask myself this question because I've been in the word of God for a long time. I've been in a church setting for a long time, and I often wonder, how much do I do out of the fact that I know it's right to do, and it's sort of routine or mechanical or familiar What else would I do? I'm so used to this. And often the Lord speaks to me, reminding me that he's still my savior, reminding me that he still has a relationship with me and I with him. And so when I opened the scriptures, it it happened this week. I was, I was wondering and I was asking about some things and because part of what I do, I don't know if you can relate to this. Part of what I do is I use the the scripture kind of like an encyclopedia or a dictionary or a manual and how to do life right how to do it clean, how to do it pure, how to do it. And and sometimes I go, you know what, Lord, that's just not really answering it for me or that's not really drawing me to you. I still seem disconnected from you, my personal savior. 
And and what he does is he leads me to start taking inventory of the things that would otherwise keep me up at night or the things that I'm concerned about that I think about you guys or our relationship together or something that's not going right at work or something that's not working well in my family. And and the Lord's saying, you care about these things. Why aren't you bringing these things to me? Well, you don't need to hear from me about that. I know I just got to plug along, be faithful and you'll work. No, no, no. I want you to talk to me about this right here and right now. And I have encouragement for you in my word that will help you process this and, and put the pieces of it together. And sure enough, that's what he did for me this week. I have to be reminded that there's freshness to the word of God, that there's, there's heart-stopping power, it would seem, in the word of God, that as I put my nose in it and as I, as I live and walk in truth, that he has something for me personally. When was the last time the words of scripture arrested you? We crave truth and truth is what we're told leads us to freedom. In a little while, we'll get to chapter eight. I know it seems like we'll never get there, but we'll get to chapter eight at some point. And we'll hear in verses 31 and 32, as Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what set you free. We say it all the time. Culture says that the truth will set you free, brother. But yet we so often think that it's our truth that will set us free. If I can just be straight up with me, if I can just come to terms with what I want in life and what I feel like I deserve, then if I'm true to myself, I will be free. But what we've discovered over and over again, not just from the word of God, but from our own personal experience, is that you and I are not great masters of our destiny, are we? You and I do not know what we need today or tomorrow or next week or in 10 years from now. So the more true to myself I am, I found the sh- I find the shackles getting tighter and tighter and tighter around my wrists. It isn't my truth that will set me free. It's the truth of who Jesus is and who he is in me that sets me free. Because if I abide in him, if I rest in him, if I become one with him and he in me, He leads us to freedom. In this case, it was literal for Jesus. He spoke truth and they didn't arrest him. It's like, oh, that's what he meant by that. Next time you're facing arrest, say something truthful. See if it works. (laughs) Jesus arrested the officers that came to arrest him. I also want us to see in a bit of a, we have to take the negative on this part of the text in order to extract out of this what I believe the Lord is, is showing me in this. But I also want us to see that Jesus is the true shepherd. And, and we see it again from a negative standpoint. We see anti-shepherding taking place here in this context because as these guys are coming to their leader and they're saying, uh, uh, hey, hey, we, we just encountered something that's really earth shattering. We're not even sure what we saw was human. They want to share this with the guys that they respect, the ones that they follow, the ones that they take orders from, and they get rejected instead. You've all encountered children that seem so starved for attention from the people who should be caring about them, and they cling to you so quickly. And, and you recognize where that's coming from, and you some people are just like, oh man, if I could take them home. These kids are precious and everything, and they're just getting neglected in other places. You've probably encountered that scenario before, and you can see the neglect just kind of dripping off of them. I see this 
in these religious people. I see this as they finally get around somebody who's speaking the words of truth and of life. And they're going, where has this been all this time? All we've been given is duty and performance and condemnation. And finally, somebody comes and, and he's kind of on our level and he's, and he's, he's actually understanding our mistakes. And he's actually touching our sick people. And, he, and he's speaking compassionate truth to us. It's so different from what we, what we receive on a regular basis. Well, what do they receive on a regular basis? We've got it on full display here. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered him, bunch of idiots in the Greek. Have you also been deceived? Listen, uh, you low, you low lowlifes here, you, you temple guard, you that have to take our orders. Have you seen any of us fall victim to this? Have, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees, you know, the people that you should be kissing our ring and bowing before, have we believed in him? Not knowing that one was starting to. And they continue their quote, but this crowd, this rabble, they don't know the law and they're accursed. They don't know it like we know it. You hear this, this spirit of the anti-shepherd coming out. These are, these are the ones charged with overseeing the flock and leading them to the grace and the glory and the forgiveness of their God. Why do we think that Jesus is kind and compassionate with everybody else? But as soon as he com- uh, encounters these guys, he, he just like laces out with venom. And he, and he puts them in their place because they were charged to care for these people. And instead, they've burdened them with regulation. They've burdened them with control. They've ascended to their places of authority. They even say it. Has, has anybody with our kind of clout believed in this guy from Galilee? What we need to see is that Jesus, what he puts on display for us is that shepherds live with the sheep. Our elder team, we've passed around a phrase before as we got it, I think, from a, like a chapter heading of a book at one point or something. It was a great little phrase. Shepherds need to smell like sheep. Do you get the sense that that's what's going on in this situation that these guys are, are touched with, as we know about Jesus, touched with the feelings of the affirmities of the sheep, that they're acquainted with the grief that they carry? Not at all. I believe that godly shepherding hinges on at least these two things, not just these two things, but at least these two things. And the first is an applied grace. A a shepherd of a flock needs to be personally aware of their own need for forgiveness on a regular basis and then also have a willingness to grant that same forgiveness to those who need it as well. We get a sense from these guys. They had forgotten the fact that they fall short of God's glory too. They were starting to get accustomed for the fact that they speak for God. Peter came up to Jesus in Matthew 18 and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, eh, let's throw a number out there. Seven times, I think I can do that. Jesus said, I don't say seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. And of course, he's not saying that's the legalistic number we stop at, but you need to go far beyond your comprehension of forgiveness if you're going to do what pleases me is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to tell a parable and a parable is a story that that isn't true, but it's making a point. 
And the parable is of this unforgiving servant because a king is looking to settle his accounts with his servants and he, and he pulls the first one in and he says, look, you owe me a heap. I mean, a ton of money. And the servant, knowing he doesn't have it, he's doing only what he can do and he's just begging for time and he's, and he's, and he's saying, look, you know, cause the, the king's saying, I will sell you and your family to pay the debt. I will take from you the only worth you have. And so seeing his, the future of his family going down the tubes and everything, he cries out for mercy and he gets the pity of the king and the king says, okay, not only am I not going to collect from you now, I'm not going to collect from you ever. You're off the hook. And then Jesus continues the story. That same guy who was forgiven then goes and encounters somebody that owes him only a hundred denarii, a fraction of what he owed the first, that what he owed the king. And he stops him dead in his tracks and says, he grabs him by the throat and says, when are you going to pay me what you owe me? I don't have it. If you just be patient with me. And he says, no, that's not going to work for me. I need it yesterday. So some of the servants that were watching this were appalled. They just saw this most moving thing of the king forgiving this servant. Being so proud of what they had just witnessed, saw him just abuse that grace. They ran and told the king, do you know what this guy just did? So the king says, bring him back in here. And he condemns him for not showing the same forgiveness that he himself received. And he says, therefore, you're going into jail for the rest of your life. Jesus tells this story to his future shepherds of God's church because he wants us all to understand that we have been far more blessed with the forgiveness we receive than we deserve. And any that we withhold from somebody else is an offense to him. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's not what we're hearing from these guys. We're hearing a lack of grace. We're seeing on display this, this looking down their nose and laughing at the simplicity of their followers. The second thing I think a godly shepherd needs is a compassion that can be demonstrated. The application of grace that comes down to the level of other people. Paul also says in Colossians 3 here, there's not Greek and Jew. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's saying all these divisions or hierarchy that you create because of authority and I'm the boss and all this kind of stuff. He goes, it all goes away. There's no difference between us in Christ. He is the most important. He is the, the highest thing in our lives. So in Christ, we all relate to one another. You see, God designed the church to be led by shepherds and not bosses. Peter strengthens this point when he says, I exhort the elders among you as as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, I paused on that this week for the first time. I was like, why does he bring up the fact that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ when he's about to tell the elders to do a good job? He continues to say, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he tells the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, which we're seeing from these other quote unquote shepherds of God's flock, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So why would Peter say, 
that I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ because the chief shepherd, he watched him physically give his life, lay his life down to go through all that suffering and to lead by sacrifice. He says, so I've witnessed what real leadership looks like. And if you're going to represent him, you will do the same. This is why this is so confusing for the witnesses. Every experience they have is that if you're an authority in God's kingdom, you strut it around, you show it off, you you reach a level that no one else can seemingly attain. And you remind them of it all the time. It's the anti-shepherd as far as Jesus is concerned. I hope you don't think I'm taking like a deviation from or a detour, I should say, from from the text, because I really think that this is what's what's challenging the cultural mindset here. Who is this guy? Why does my heart burn after him? Why does his leadership look like what I've been looking for all along? Can I just make this one last point about our church leadership? I, I want to. This part's a little bit of a detour, but I think it's an important place to mention it. Uh, rest assured, in my estimation, I serve with the most humble and unified leadership team I've ever seen in a church. And uh, it's not because they're pushovers and passive. They are very opinionated, some of them obnoxiously so. And you know who you are. <laughs> Me too. But the humility that surrenders our personal opinion towards greater unity is constantly on display with your leadership. And so uh, I am just at, by way of endorsement telling you, you can trust them and uh, and you can follow their lead because they smell like sheep. And that's what we're striving for. And I appreciate those guys very much. This is what uh, Jeremy Wren says on a tiny little book that we've all read together that the leadership teams read together. He says, you can never completely eliminate the danger of overbearing leadership. Pride constantly stalks our hearts and it's ultimately the responsibility of each elder. And I insert pastor because when they say elder, they mean both to crucify his ego daily by the spirit's power. But churches can also do things to foster a culture of humble governance. And here's his recommendation. A, choose humble leaders, and that's why I'm saying I think you've done a great job of that, uh, present company excluded. Um, uh, delegate to other ministry leaders to share the responsibility of the ministry with other capable people instead of taking it all on yourself to be the hero is basically what he's getting at here. Three, remain accountable. Live your life with other people. They can look into the windows of your soul and challenge you if necessary and encourage you as is always necessary. Number four, honor the word, which is one of the reasons why we had Jay come up here and read the scripture in isolation. It's just another small attempt we make to highlight the word of God here at faith, to replicate yourself so that we are producing others like us as we go. We're not doing this in such a way where we say no one can do it like me. And we trust the congregation. The spirit of God lives within the people of God and their voice needs to be heard and their judgment and discernment needs to be trusted as well. We do this together. You see how this is totally contrary to the cultural religion that was going on at the time. Listen to the experts, shut your trap, do what you're told. We'll tell you what God says. You don't need to find it out for yourself. Jesus comes and says, I am going to make it so that there are rivers of living water coming out of you. The spirit will come and indwell the hearts of every believer. 
It's confusing to them. They're thinking, we might be on the verge of hope here, but they're telling us to shut up and take your seat. Don't trust this upstart. But this is who Jesus is because shepherds provide for the sheep. He's offering food and water at every turn. He's looking at everybody with compassion. Matthew 9 tells us that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Now we're starting to see what that means. Like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is caring. He is nurturing. He is a supplier of what we need. But also, he's a divider. So let's wrap up our text here by seeing something that, that doesn't quite get resolved by Jesus' niceness. Because Jesus came to confront the authority. He came to put a stop to man-made anything. And to point everybody towards what God is up to and what his work is doing and the grace that is made available from him. So Nicodemus in verse 50, who we were introduced to in chapter 3, makes a return to the scene. Nicodemus, as you recall, was a respected leader. He was the guy they all looked to. He was a teacher of teachers. He was amongst them. So they just got done saying, did anybody in authority fall for this guy? Nicodemus is over there going, me, starting to, thinking about it. So Nicodemus, who had gone, gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You hear the technicality he's introducing? He doesn't come quite come out and say, I say we should give him a chance. He speaks to them at the level they speak. He speaks to them on the things they care about because all they claim to care about is protecting the law, doing it right, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I. So he calls them on that and said, no, wait a second. We have a, we have a way of doing this, right? Do we condemn people right out of the gate without first kind of putting him on trial, finding out what he's all about? What do they respond? They say, absolutely, that's a good point. We got away from our, our policies and procedures. What were we thinking? We claim to care about that more than anything else. Nope. They go low. Are you, what are you, a Galilean too? You can hear the disregard and the disrespect for the people. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus is taking steps towards belief in Jesus. We don't know fully where his heart is at this time, but we can tell he's starting to think about maybe this is the real guy. And so he interjects favorably on Jesus' behalf to buy him more time, perhaps. And what do these people that care so much about their process do? They insult him. They go personal. And they're totally wrong. They rejected truth in order to keep their throne and in the process made themselves look like idiots because, yup, there are prophets that have come from Galilee. Jonah was clearly one. Speculation that Elijah and Nahum also came from Galilee. So while they were getting hot and all, all worked up and frantically and shooting down, just going low and everything, they're actually making themselves look stupid. And history was there to record it, fortunately for you and me. But this is what happens. This is why Jesus came to confront this kind of authority because it's leading people astray. We make no mistake about it that Jesus came to divide. We want to see him just as a unifier, just as a forgiver, and he is all those things, but not to compromise the truth of who he is. 
Luke 12 tells us, he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? We'd all say, yep, that's what we sing about at Christmas time. You're the Prince of Peace, right? I mean, if you don't know your whole Bible, then you start to think where, you know, you bounce around like a ping pong ball going, well, what's, what's true? What's not? Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her. Well, that's common. That happens. That wasn't Jesus' fault. That was just the whole in-law thing. Jesus says, Remember what we saw in that tiny little phrase when we first started out our text, that they were divided over him? Yes, he came to bring peace. Yes, he came to bring restoration. He came to to make families whole. This isn't a, a marching order for you to go out and offend everybody in your path. I'm serving Jesus, and he said, I can divide you. Division must come from Jesus alone. When division comes as a result of Jesus, it's because it's truth-centered and not man-desired. And I think that's the part where we get a little squirrely in the Christian faith and in church culture and things, is we think everything that we believe is right means it's our liberty, therefore, to divide. Well, I'm just standing up for Jesus. But he was the master of doing that well. He was the master at leading with so much compassion and so much care and concern that when he spoke truth, they had to really internalize it and wrestle with it. It got them to places that they couldn't quite comprehend and they were stumbling around in some confusion. You and I are not that skilled. Yes, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have the words of the Lord, but we can use them to human ends. Can we not? Jesus is simply incompatible with all other agendas. When we encounter other agendas that are against God, as we stand for truth, it will cause that division. And what we're seeing from the scripture is Jesus is, is okay with that. Not because he desires it. He wants all to come to him in repentance. But he said, that's what's going to happen. He also warned his disciples, it's not because they hate you, it's because they hate me. Don't do the things intentionally that will cause them to hate you. Let them hate me. I'm a good shepherd. I will take their arrows. I will carry their complaints. What happens is that division over Jesus leads to all kinds of unity and clarity. I mean, even from a negative standpoint, his, his enemies were unified against him. You had people that had vastly different theological perspectives in, in Judaism. You had the, you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They didn't agree on, on a handful of things, but they united against Jesus. So even from a negative standpoint, Jesus is bringing people together. But Jesus wants unity. And he knows it will only come through him. So all other pursuits are worth dividing over. But this is tricky for us, and I would love to have more time to say more about it. So my instruction for you for now in this area of division is don't think you carry the cross of division for Jesus himself. And therefore going out and mowing down everybody in what you think is the name of truth. Err more on the side of showing the compassion and patience of Jesus and the supply that he brings so that they see rivers of living water. Remember last week we talked about are you speaking life into the environments in which you live? 
division and hostility, those often get clouded in just crankiness or opinion or fear or uh, position or any of those kinds of things. But division over truth, that will happen and that will become clearer to us over time. I would encourage us this morning to put ourselves in a position to be arrested by God's truth, to seek his word for the issues of our souls. So that we come before him saying, Lord, what do you have for me in concrete truth that I haven't been acquainted with or it's been a long time I've let the dust settle on it? How will you arrest my heart with your truth? How will you set me free in it? And that we would trust the patient presence of Jesus as a good shepherd, as the chief overseer of our entire lives, not just our parts that we think can be religious, but over the whole of our lives. And and I think the church needs to hear this, the church kind of broadly, not just faith in on KMD. But I think we as a people need to be willing to suffer distinction in our life. Not everything we do, even if we're leading with love and compassion, will be received by others. Because the truth of Jesus affronts them, it offends them, it starts to, uh, it starts to dismantle their, their strongholds and the things that have brought them their sense of security. Most will not agree with your pursuit of the life of Jesus. But we don't snobbily kind of wash them away and say, oh, they're just part of the crowd. Of course, they wouldn't come to Jesus because they don't have an awareness of him like I do. We're going to shrug off that mindset and that personality, that that wickedness that we saw in the Pharisees. And we're going to be careful not to be the reason that someone is offended by Jesus, us as the reason, because his truth can handle that all on its own. There's a winsomeness that comes with the Christian faith that we sometimes get away from that, that this last year and a half has it's seemingly kind of obliterated all of the kindness and compassion of Christianity, but I don't think it has. I think that's a social media distortion. I think there are a lot of people that are leading with the heart of Jesus Christ and loving people on a personal level. We just have to keep going at it. We have to keep promoting that and letting the Lord be seen through us. They will encounter the truth of who he is. It will offend them. It will be an affront to them, and they'll have to surrender their hearts to Jesus or reject him. You and I can uh, help them along the way and be prayerful for them as we go. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, we need your wisdom. There wasn't a lot of black and white coming from your scripture for us today, Lord. There's wisdom that has to bounce a few things in our in our minds and in our hearts. We have to apply them carefully. But that's where your patience comes in, Lord. And uh, we thank you for it, God. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the surrender of the hearts of your people that are willing to walk forward in this life, Lord. Help us to be effective, but help us to be truthful, Lord. We know that we will suffer separation from those that don't get it, that aren't willing to accept the truth. So so encourage us, build us up. We're just people. Nobody likes to be hated. Nobody likes to be ostracized. So may your grace fill in those gaps that our, that our fear and our intimidation off, often fill. So we thank you, Lord, for your love and for your mercy on us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.